Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Women at War. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the Bush War in the 1970s. Those tough colonial women who defended their homes and supported their husbands through the hardships of the rebellions left behind a legacy that would alarm their great-granddaughters simply because history seemed to be repeating itself. Once again, the women were forced to fend for themselves while the men went to war. Like their great-grandmothers, the farm women suddenly found themselves learning new skills. Many, such as my mother, didn't even know where the tobacco seed beds were, and many never dreamed that they might have to run a farm. Other, more urgent skills, such as first aid, radio work, and how to dismantle or shoot a weapon became fundamental to their survival. Target practice was one of the highlights of the month and allowed the women to get together and gossip. Target practice was held at a range specially built on the Girdlestones farm, Prangmare. Women from all over the victory block would congregate with the kids and nannies. I much prefer the Uzi, remarked my mother to a friend, at least it doesn't leave ghastly bruises on your shoulder like the automatic shotgun. I mean, honestly, try wearing a halter neck with those awful dark marks. I know, Libby. I couldn't agree more. And as for this FN, I break a bloody nail every time I try to fill the magazine. Several women nodded assent. Too true, Roseanne, but the one I hate is the browning pistol. That hair trigger gives me the heebie-jeebies. God, now how on earth do we reassemble this flipping weapon? Do we really need to understand this? Keep those kids out of the firing range, Andy Lang, the rather dashing police chief, would bark. This is not a bloody playground, right? Now, ladies, assemble your weapons, please. Ladies, concentrate, please. This was followed by a jangle of silver and ivory bracelets as the women began to put the rifles back together. Target practice was like a fate. This was the 1970s, and these were no ordinary farm women. Hair was teased up and sprayed, eyeliner applied, fetching A-line frocks and flared paisley slacks were donned. And yes, Uzis were slung over the shoulder like an accessory. I have a lasting memory of a line of women all dressed to kill, quite literally, standing in a row, loading magazines with rounds, and letting loose into a bank of targets shaped like soldiers. The weapon loathed above all was the Belgian-made semi-automatic called the FN, or Fabrique Nationale. Heavy, cumbersome, and 
utterly deadly. It fired 7.62 millimeter rounds and could tear a man to pieces. It was the weapon of choice in the army, but for a housewife it had a kick like a mule, whereas the Uzi, or the locally made Ruzi, spelt R-H-U-Z-I, could be fired from the hip like Bonnie and Clyde. After practice, the women would gather up their bairns and jump into their cars and head back to the Girdlestone for tea and scones and lashings of gossip. Being brought up with guns did not mean you were safe from them. Accidents happened all the time. ADs, as they were known, or the rather unfortunate accidental discharge, this sounds more like a wet dream. When I was home on R&R from the army, my FN went everywhere with me. It never left my side. One afternoon, I was chatting to my mum in her room. She was titivating at her table, gossiping about this or that. I had removed the magazine from the rifle and was cradling the weapon in my arms. Then I made the rookie mistake that might have changed my life. I pulled the trigger, thinking the chamber was empty. Stupid, idiot, fuckwit. All that training for nothing. At first there was a sound, so close, so loud, that it didn't register. And then within a millisecond, the crash resounded all around us, reverberating off the walls of the bedroom. Staring at me, silent, unmoving, lipstick poised, was my mother with a neat, round crater in the wall two inches from her head. My body froze. Then my father was shouting from the veranda, Is everyone okay? We both shouted back that we were fine. My father knew better than to come in and give me 40,000 words. Everyone was fine. That's all he needed to know. Christ, whispered my mum. And then she turned and went back to her titivating, her hands slightly shaking from the shock as she teased her hair with a comb. The incident was never mentioned again. That deadly round lay embedded in the wall as if a reminder that once, just once, I nearly killed my mother. During 1978 and 1979, the war escalated. Soon, most farm wives were riding shotgun wherever they went. The fighting was never going to stop the party, of course, but having an Uzi tucked under the front seat was extremely comforting. At the club, guns had to be left at the door, a strange sight for most urbanites seeing a group of smartly dressed women rack up their weapons before going into the bar to order a Sanzano and soda. Most farm wives also had to do a three-day stint each month manning the radios at the police station at Sipililo. I suspect many of them loved this. Granted, they had to wear dreary grey police uniforms, but they also had carte blanche to flirt outrageously with the cops, including the handsome O.C. 
Often the reality of war would shatter the monotony of the radio room. One time a neighbor, Roseanne Henderson, was manning the radio. Her husband was named John, as was my father, as was a young Englishman called John Foster, a bachelor who had recently come out from the UK to live in Rhodesia. We called him John the Palm. The three Johns were all out on patrol together when their armoured vehicle was hit by an RPG. In a totally fluke shot, the rocket penetrated the cabin, causing mayhem and carnage. Manning the radio back at base, Roseanne heard that John had been killed. Not knowing which John it was, she sat in abject terror, waiting for that radio to buzz. Oh, it takes a very special kind of person to keep control in a situation like that. Roseanne also was expected to feed the rest of the farming community information and news through the AgriAlert, a radio system connecting all the farmers in the district. It allowed farmers to speak to other farmers when their homes were being attacked at any time of night or day. That day, the Victory Block community held its breath and waited, and waited. Hearing the brave voice of Roseanne telling everyone that a man was down and that his name was John must have been horrific for her, for my mother, and for the community. Finally, when she got word that it was John the Palm, she rather guiltily breathed a long sigh of relief. John the Pom had no wife or children. I suspect my own mother was also terribly relieved to find out that her own John was also safe. Incredibly, my own father had changed seats with John the Pom only minutes before the ambush. If you had to believe in fate, perhaps that was the time. My father believed it was fate that John the Pom should swap seats at the last minute, and in doing so, saved the lives of men who had children and wives to support. John was loved in the community, and his loss was a terrible shock and a terrifying jolt to the community. I was home for the holidays with my pals, Spike and Hortz, and I remember my father arriving back at the house that evening still covered in blood. It was late, and they had wrapped the dead body up in a tarp and stashed it under an avocado tree at the Henderson's house. We didn't know what to do with it, my dad said. He was exhausted, and he threw himself on the sofa poured himself a cold castle lager and stared at Dallas, which was playing on TV. An extract from my diary, dated Tuesday, 10th of July, 1979, reads, Exit weekend. John was called out on duty at about 6.15pm. Their unit were driving in a crocodile when they were ambushed by terrorists. By sheer fluke, an RPG rocket managed to hit their vehicle at the exact right angle, the missile entering the crocodile and killing John Foster, known as John the Pom, and a guard force man. Local farmer Tim Strong was also injured. It was absolutely gruesome, 
poor John the Palm. Our own John had his blood all over him. This war is really beyond a joke now. John the Palm was such a nice bloke. What an end to an already horrible weekend, because Mum was called out to do a medics course for three days. Early Tuesday morning, John drove us kids back to town. The car broke down and we needed to be pushed. John yelled at us, Shit, we can never do anything right. I hate him, you know. It's terrible because he's my father, but I've never liked him. Oh, shit. It's terrible and I'm so depressed. We managed to change the battery in Ambukwe's village and drove on into town. The atmosphere was awful. Spike and Hortz never came to school that day, so I tried to sleep in the afternoon. But it did no good. I really feel down in the dumps. You know, it's incredible how hard war makes one, because when we told Dunk about John the Pom, he hardly reacted. He just seemed so casual, like it was an everyday thing. Of course, that doesn't mean he has no feelings. I find it strange, that entry, and quite moving for a kid. I seem more annoyed about my father-son relationship. Of course, for a father, the pressures of war, of losing a friend in front of you, of trying to defend your country, not to mention your family, it must have seemed insurmountable for Woody. Little wonder that he was so uptight and cranky with his wayward child. Having other people's kids to look after was just an added pressure. But from my teenage eyes, he was just, well, he was just a twat. He never seemed to let up on my sister or on me. He was doing his best. But at the time, growing up in this environment, well, it wasn't easy. Domestic life had to change to fit into war. Windows of homes had grenade screens installed, often just some chicken wire across the window. Security fences were erected around gardens, often disguised with creepers and shrubs, or better still, sharp pointy sisals. No grenade screen or security fence could ever stop an RPG or a round from an AK-47, but one went to bed slightly less worried. Women lived in constant fear, but the lagers they formed, much like their ancestors, often had a party atmosphere, swapping recipes, knitting patterns, and certainly getting quite sloshed along the way. Our friends, the Moorcrofts, were with us one night. The men were once again all out on par two. George Moorcroft, who is my age, was sleeping with his brother in the cottage across the lawn from our main house. This was before we had a security fence erected. When George was in bed that night, he saw a black face appear at the window. It chilled him to the bone and he rushed across the lawn to tell us. Now, are you sure, George, Mona, his mum, asked. Was it a face you saw? I swear, mum, jeez, come on, I know what I saw, George said. Well, all the staff have gone home. It could have been Fred or Conda, I suppose, my mother said, but it's late. Who do you think it was? We immediately got on the agric alert, although there was really little anyone could do. 
ultimately, we knew we were on our own. Dirt roads were occasionally mined, and no one could travel on them until they had been given the all clear. The distant, crackly voice of the woman on police reserve duty over 50 miles away did little to allay our fears. And where are those bloody useless dogs of mine, my mum asked. Great guard dogs they make. It was then that we noticed that the dogs were gone. They would have barked had someone been prowling around. It was a mystery, but not unknown for the dogs to all go off hunting at night. Still, it was several days before they mysteriously reappeared, and only after the war ended and the stories emerged did we find out that our home was due to be attacked that night. My childhood friend Alec had allegedly been complicit in this attempt on our lives. I say allegedly. Alec, my one-time best friend before I went to school, Alec, whom I'd played with in the sand down at the river, climbed copies and splashed in the zinc tub down at the compound. While I went off to high school, Alec went to war. Alec, now a teenage lad, had become a mujiba, those essential links between the terrorists and the local community. Incredibly, this group of some 15 guerrillas, including their commander, a notorious, very vicious man called Mao, was camped only 200 yards from our house. They'd been there for a fortnight. The bush was so dense it was impossible to know. The special branch informed us that they had watched my mother go riding each morning as they made plans to attack our home. We'll never really know what made them change their minds and scrap the attack. Perhaps they felt safe on the farm, and it was common knowledge that Masitwi was used by them for R&R. An attack would compromise their position. Another unlikely scenario was that they wanted to kill my father, not the women and kids. <laughs> These men were not exactly known for their chivalry. Whatever the reason, though, one thing we do know is that the war came very close to us that night, even if we didn't have a clue about it at the time. For many, it came too close, way too close. In 1978, my wonderfully kind uncle David Ward was ambushed in Mazoe in broad daylight on his way home. Missouri wasn't considered a hot area, and it came as a shock to all of us when we heard that he had been killed. David's wife, my Aunt Maggie, and her four children were only a few miles away at home, on Concarden, waiting for him to return from another uneventful day at work. It broke all of our hearts, and for those of us who knew David, the damage was irreversible. That same year, my classmate Colin Tilly was killed by terrorists at the gate of his home, murdered in daylight trying to get into his house. He was only 15. Another ghastly tragedy. My diary speaks for itself. Wednesday, 13th of December, 1978. Three farms were attacked this evening. John is meant to be helping because he's in charge. 
Of course, we get little sleep because of the agric alert, the things constantly going off. Many compounds in the district have been burnt to the ground, and there's no thatching grass at this time of year. The Beresford farm has been attacked. It's their third time. Friday, 15th of December, 1978. Sid Moorcroft's dad was killed by terrorists. That poor family have had it so bad. Sunday, 17th of December, 1978. We went to Sheena Philp's wedding last night, but we had to leave Salisbury at 6 a.m. to get home because John was called out on duty. There's been a lot of trouble in Maturashanga. Mum and I went to a panto, Snow White, at the Horseshoe Club, which was excellent because everyone forgot their lines. It was spooky driving home that night. We shouldn't have been on the road. Tuesday, 19th of December, 1978. Went to the Girdlestones for shooting practice. I got 10 out of 10, which I thought was damn good, although John said I should get top marks anyway. Mum only got 3 out of 10. Wednesday, 20th of December, 1978. There's been a lot of activity on Chiwi Estates. The Agric Alert's been going crazy. The estates have been attacked, and I think someone has been killed. I'll tell you just now. Yes, a bloke called Joubert has been killed. It just never ends, does it? John's been called out again. Thursday, 21st of December, 1978. Both Mum and John have been called out. Mum to do radio duty. I can't stay at home alone, so I'm going to the Philps who are having a party tonight. I'll sleep there. Sunday, 24th of December, 1978, Christmas Eve. The Harringtons had a carol service where I read one of the lessons. Halfway through, all the men were called out because the Muir of Ord store had been attacked, leaving only the women, kids, and Father French singing carols. All our men had a contact with the terrorists. There was a landmine down the road. Everyone's very fraught. Monday, 25th of December, 1978, Christmas Day. John's still out on duty. A whole family from Shamburn, and all their relatives out for Christmas were killed today. One of them was a Bennett, and I think he went to Mbukwe school. He's been abducted, and it's just so awful. All of the others dead. That Boxing Day, we had more than 50 people turn up for a lunch garden party, mostly women or elderly or the very young. All the men were out on patrol. Life went on. My mother, of course, wouldn't have considered cancelling. Perish the thought. Anyway, back then, the idea of trying to get hold of everyone on a party-line phone, well, it was fanciful. Imagine the cacophony of ringing and trings and tringing. I suppose you could use the Agric Alert, Mum, I suggested rather feebly. God, no, said my mum. That's highly illegal. And anyway, not everyone on the other end has been invited. I would be mortified if they knew I was throwing a do. So, landmines aside, the entire district, bar a few, donned their frocks and drove the 20-odd mile to our farm for a fabulous day of revelry and way too much punch.
The war just never seemed to end that year, and my father often slept down at the barns to protect the crop from being torched. Many people weren't quite so lucky. Our neighbor, Heath Laurent, had 70 bales of tobacco burned at a cost of 4,000 US dollars, a considerable amount of money back then. Some people lost their entire crops. Day to day, we waited, holding our breath. Thursday, 25th of January, 1979. Terrorists have been spotted near Matimber on our farm. Vaughan Davis' house was burnt down to the ground. Mum got a mysterious phone call. John was called out because shots were heard on Muir of Ord. Dave Dolphin was nearly killed because one partu stick wasn't told that he was down at the store checking up on the shots that had been heard. Of course, all they saw was this figure and so open fired. Luckily, they missed him. Tuesday, 15th of May, 1979. It's been a terrible week. First the Vassards hitting a landmine, then Doug Muir getting killed, then Bill Meeker being attacked, then the Irvines attacked, and now Mike Chance getting killed. This war is getting beyond a joke now. Dear God, please protect Duncan. Poor Mike only had a month and a half left to go in the army. John's partu stick was called out and they killed two terrorists. No one in the stick seems to know who shot the killing bullets. Loads of contacts are going on in the district. Played squash with the halls. By now, the men were being called out on nightly partu duty. Night after night, the agri-alerts would burst into static as farm after farm was attacked. With farmers out on patrol all the time, the farm management was left up to the wives and children. Thursday, 17th of May, 1979. I am on my own today, and I can hear a contact going on right now at the moment. Still, I have to dip the cattle. I wanted to go to the club, but have been told to stay put as it's too dangerous to travel. Someone was killed by a landmine nearby in Maturashanga. Monday, 21st of May, 1979. Woke up early and went to town. It was like going to your doom. We collected Mandy and went to Mike Chant's funeral. It was absolutely terrible, just terrible and very moving. It was a military funeral. The bugle, the last post, the flag over the coffin, the final gun salute. The family naturally just broke down then, especially when the troops saluted the coffin. God, what a waste of a wonderful man. Luanne had to be carried out sobbing. Later there was a wake and drinks in the Stuart room at the Meekles Hotel. Funnily enough, the Chance family were incredible, so strong. That day, there were three funerals, all friends of mine. And the war on the farms continued. Friday, 25th of May, 1979. Sid Moorcroft's farm was attacked again last night. Bugs was there alone, and a reaction stick made up of farmers from Raffangora were hit by a Zulu, injuring nearly everyone in the vehicle. Most have been sent to hospital. Some may die. 
It's terrible, pretty terrible. Shit, I really love my family. I was just thinking that if any of them are killed, my whole life would change. And it could happen at any time. I just want to cry thinking about it. These buggers who were blown up at Sid's farm, they're in a terrible way. Mike Graham has lost an eye and may lose the other. He did. Another chap was shot in the neck. Mum's on radio duty as usual at the moment, listening to it all. The Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation, Anchors, would issue a communique every night at 8pm, beginning with the security forces regret to announce the death in action of. If the person or people killed were not known to us, we would all breathe a sigh of relief and go back to our supper. White people were all announced first, despite the Rhodesian army being 60% black. We knew few black soldiers, so if the communique began with an indigenous name, my mum would tell us to get back to the table before the scoff got cold. Still, it was hard for outsiders to understand the anxiety we were all faced with, day in and day out. My aunt Sue and cousins Madeleine and Mark seemed desensitised by it all. The kids had grown up in the UK, so we accepted that they might be more liberal. Indeed, we rather enjoyed their liberal attitude. It wasn't exactly difficult to appear liberal in a country like Rhodesia. Their father, Andrew, was a raging liberal, to quote my dad. My father aside... The rest of us pretty much understood that everyone has a right to their own political leanings. But it hurt us all the same when they taped a Zimbabwe poster on their wall, illustrating two freedom fighters. It seemed remarkably insensitive. Naturally, this culminated in a massive row with my brother storming into their flat and tearing it down. My maternal cousins were provocative to say the least, egged on, as always, by my Uncle Andrew, whose left-wing views were always at the back of their minds. As much as I adored my cousin, I was also terribly mystified by their overt pro-Zanu stance. Monday, 28th of May, 1979. I swear if anything happens to Duncan in this war, I'll kill Sue, Mark and Madeleine for daring to put up such a poster of that Hideous Zimbabwe gorilla. What on earth were they thinking? I had a terrible dream that Dunk was killed and Ganty, my gran, thinks it's an omen that Duncan left last night without saying goodbye. God, please look after him. Tuesday, 29th of May, 1979. We became Zimbabwe Rhodesia today. Big dramas. It's terrible to see our family torn apart because of this war. Relationships have broken down. Duncan had an enormous row with Sue and Madeleine over that poster. He tore it up and Madeleine threw herself at him and they were shouting and bellowing. Duncan nearly hit Madeleine. I believe it was rarely bad. Already the filial bond has been broken. There's no way to repair it. But the terrible thing is that I love Madeleine and at the same time I couldn't bear to defy my family and country. So therefore, the only thing I have to do is try and play cool with Madeleine and be on Duncan's side. Shit, it's a lousy war. 
our lives are in turmoil. But that's war. Played rugby. Of course, blood is thicker than water and certainly stronger than government. I called Madeleine the next day and we made up. Thursday, 31st of May, 1979. Mum called. John has been called out on duty. His stick killed six to eight terrorists. That same month, some guerrillas had been captured and interrogated. Special branch called to tell my father that he was now a marked man. Our lives seemed to have been turned upside down. The family was at loggerheads with each other. Our house was quite possibly being watched at night. We were allowed only one light on after dark. I've no idea how that would have helped. We were hardly being aerial bombed, and any gorilla worth his metal would have known exactly where to find our house, even in the dark. Even Paul, our wonderful black farm manager, was caught up in it and arrested for collaboration. I suspect Paul had little choice, seeing as he had the barrel of an AK-47 pointed at his head. Thursday, 7th of June, 1979. Paul, our manager, has been given five years in jail because he collaborated with the terrorists. It's terrible, but has to be done. I feel so sorry for him, but on the other hand, it's because of him that my family may be killed. The trouble with a clever black guy like him is that when he comes out of prison, he will most certainly be a terrorist lover and a white hater. It seems little will be achieved, but surely he must know he did wrong. After all, he is now fighting against his own country, Zimbabwe. How naive of me. Paul was released from prison in an amnesty the next month, having only spent a few weeks in jail. I was relieved, and although he did come back to the farm to ask for his job back, it was simply untenable. I've no idea where he is or what he's doing, nor do I know where his convictions lie, but I do hope that he's doing well for himself. Of course, life was not without its funny side. One day, just before lunch, an almighty racket suddenly descended upon the house. It sounded like a spaceship was about to land on us. Running outside, we were delighted to see about eight or nine French-made Alouette helicopters hovering just feet above the lawn in perfect V formation. The air around the house looked like a soup of swirling, twisting nasturtiums and marigolds, the odd canna lily whipping across our paths like a rag doll. A hurricane of leaves and plants flying through the air, the dogs tearing around in a frenzy, a terrified garden boy ducking for cover beneath a now flattened bougainvillea. It looked and sounded like a scene from a Vietnam War movie. And there, sitting in the seat of the lead helicopter, was my mum's cousin, Air Commodore Mick Greer, a wicked smile splitting his face from side to side. Then they dipped across the lawn as one to position themselves above the swimming pool, and with a flick of his thumb, Mick ordered his boys to jump. The three of us kids watched in astonishment as one after another, fully loaded, the men leapt into our swimming pool 
emerging laughing and spluttering and ready for a well-earned beer. The choppers turned and flew down to the stables where they landed on the nearest available flat piece of land, scattering the horses who were skittish at the best of times. It was without a doubt the most dramatic entrance I had ever witnessed, not to mention highly irregular. Sorry, Libby, Mick said, giving her a big hug. I just couldn't resist. I saw your call sign, Tango Whiskey 2-3, laid out on white bricks as we flew over and thought, bugger it, I haven't seen my cousin for yonks. And anyway, it's almost time for a G&T. We've just returned from a contact near the escarpment. Quite a firefight, I can tell you. Later, after a rowdy lunch and half-hearted ticking off from my mum for buggering up her garden, Mick attached my father to a winch and flew him over the farm, dangling from a rope. Had he lifted his arms, he would have simply slipped to his death. My father is, to my knowledge, the only man ever to set foot on the pinnacle of Matimba, the tallest and most inaccessible tower of granite in the district. We were green with envy, but still so happy to see Mick turn up unannounced in such a wonderfully eccentric manner. I think the horses are still running. Never a dull moment was to be had on a Rhodesian farm. By the end of the war, some 30,000 people had been killed on both sides, many of whom were civilians. For those women at the sharp end, often lonely and remote, with husbands away on active duty, their bravery, stoicism, and unwavering spirit helped make those turbulent years for a kid such as me seem almost like an adventure. Almost. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.